Well, we are in our final week of our Advent series, and I hope this series has is hopefully done what it's designed to do. It's, it's about us getting excited, that anticipation of the coming King, reminding ourselves of what he came for, and actually the, the depth of despair that they were in and we were in before he came. And um, I'm getting excited. I'm also getting excited because we're top of the league, Yay! which is amazing. Yeah, it was a great day yesterday. But, you know, this week has been a great week in many weeks, not just because we're top of the league. I got to go and see my son in his nativity play on Friday, along with a few other parents from here. My son was a, a sheep, very proud parent of a sheep in the nativity play. He did a great job of standing there and looking sheepish. There was nothing adventurous like Chris told that story last week. Apart from a wise man tripping up the stairs, everything went to plan. Today, I want to actually look at this story in Luke 2. This is where we're ending, essentially, uh, on looking at the birth narrative. And you know, this is a really well-known narrative, you know, and for many of us, we'll have been in nativity plays at schools. We will, we will know this narrative very, very well. And yet, I want to suggest that this narrative is one of the most misunderstood narratives, actually, in the faith today. There's lots of things that are happening in this passage where we have a story that's on a nativity play, that's on Christmas cards everywhere, and this is the picture that we have. And I want to paint a very different picture that Chris said it's going to wreck your Christmas. I want to suggest it doesn't wreck our Christmas, actually. The picture that it paints is a beautiful picture. Um, and we just need to see it afresh and look at it differently. So just to recap where we're up to, we know that Matt has spoken on the angel appearing to Mary and telling this young girl that she's going to give birth to a son and she's to name him Jesus. And uh, he's going to be great. He will be called son of the most high God and he will have a kingdom that will never end. And Mary obviously looks at this angel and is a bit like, hold on, how is that going to happen? This is an impossibility. I'm a virgin. The angel says, no, you are blessed. And God's going to do a miraculous thing, and you're going to bear the Son of God. Her response is quite amazing. She sings this song. She doesn't get too panicked. Um, and she goes off to see her cousin, Elizabeth. She spends three months with Elizabeth. And uh, her, her husband-to-be, Joseph, actually doesn't shame her. Uh, actually believes that this baby that she's carrying is Jesus, is the Messiah. And so he travels with her, uh, and this is where we pick up this passage in Luke 2, okay? If you've got your Bibles, please turn there. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit of time just walking through this passage, okay? And so I want to stop right here at this point and just look at who this Caesar Augustus is, because he plays a crucial role here. Um, and actually, Chris last week was looking at three kings of leaders of the, of the, of the world there. And this guy here, actually, I want to suggest, uh, at this point in history, the entire world was pretty much room, ruled by Rome, the Roman Empire, most of the known world at that point was overcome by the Roman Empire. And this guy here was the guy who was leading it. 
If there was ever a king that people would look at, it was this guy here. Uh, he was the nephew of Julius Caesar, but because Julius Caesar had no heir alive at that point when he died, he had essentially adopted this man as his, he was actually his nephew, but he adopted him as a son and heir to the throne. When Julius Caesar died, he was given a status of a, a, almost deity. He was recognized as a god. And so Caesar Augustus came into power as the son of God. He was the self-professed son of God. Augustus is Latin for the one who should be praised and worshipped. And obviously Caesar means emperor. So it's the emperor who should be praised and worshipped. And the famous poet Virgil said this as he was born. He says, Augustus would be a divine king. The one the world had been waiting for. The one who would bring salvation to all the earth. Freeing the people from fear. And establishing a universal empire of peace. This was the word spoken over Caesar Augustus here. And that's quite some credentials, isn't it? It actually sounds a little bit like the word spoken over Jesus. So he was going to be a divine king that would bring salvation and peace on earth. Well, do you know what? He actually did a lot in the Roman Empire. He achieved a lot. He established the Pax Romana. But you know, the way he accomplished this peace in the kingdom at that point was actually through force and intimidation. So essentially, he would say to the people, if you don't keep the peace, I'm just going to get rid of you. That was how it worked. That's how he enforced Pax Romana. It was, you don't do what I say and you die. He was actually responsible for killing thousands and thousands of people and oppressing many, many nations. And under him, he changed the entire tax system. But the taxation that he implied was so incredibly high that poverty became absolutely rife among the nations. And if you, you can imagine why. If you governed a large area, as large as the Roman Empire, then you were going to struggle to keep a check on everything going on. So what you had to do is you had to establish rulers and kings who were going to rule over different areas of the world for you. And ultimately, those rulers and kings were going to be accountable to you. Okay? And we found out last week that Herod was appointed as the Jewish king. He was a, a, a Jew appointed as king. And he would have been appointed by Caesar Augustus. Okay? And if you wanted to enforce the laws that you wanted to bring on this absolute massive nation, these rulers had to rule with large armies. Uh, and it would have been massive resources that he would have needed. And it's estimated, actually, historians estimate the tax was around 80 to 90%. So as you can imagine, this time that he ruled was a very difficult time to live under. If you couldn't pay, people lost the land that they had been handed through generation to generation. You'd just lose your land. And we find out here that they, there's a census going on. And a census was the only way that Augustus could keep track on exactly how many people were living in each area how much land they owned, what their land produced, and how much money they owed him. And so this is why this census is going on. And Luke tells us that everybody had to go to their hometown to register. And a lot of historians at this point, as they look at history, they suggest that because these taxes were so high, many people who owned land from generation to generation had lost it. 
they actually just had to hand it straight over again and it got sold to someone who could afford it. And so when we've got this travelling going on to go for the census, there was a lot of displaced people. There was a lot of people not living in the towns that they had grown up in because they couldn't afford to. And so they had to move out to areas that were less wealthy. Um, and so, actually, this is one of the reasons we think about Mary and Joseph traveling is probably because Joseph had to move out of the town that he had been brought up in. So back to the story here. Caesar calls the census, and um, we all know the story, don't we? Mary and Joseph are traveling. They're currently living where before the census? Nazareth. And they have to travel to Bethlehem. So how do they get there? Donkey. Really? We sure about that? Is that in the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible. There was a nice little donkey in the nativity play. There's people now checking their Bibles. Is that not in the Bible? We'll have some prayer ministry afterwards, okay? Actually, that was the mode of transport, absolutely. But there's a couple of things that happen with donkeys. One is, they're actually very uncomfortable to travel on. And the distance that Mary and Joseph would have to travel... They reckon it would have taken, well, the, the most likely mode of transport was on foot, actually. They would have travelled about four to eight days on foot. Um, and it says in Luke that they went up to Bethlehem, which is very appropriate words to use because Bethlehem was actually on a mountain about 800 metres high, which would have been a gruelling journey for most of us anyway. But a heavily pregnant lady is travelling on foot for four to eight days. They actually were very poor. And they probably couldn't have afforded a donkey to travel on. Okay? So they travel to Bethlehem. We all know this story. We've acted in many nativity plays. Um, they essentially arrive, don't they, in Bethlehem. And we've seen it. They knock, on, they knock on the inns. And you get in the nativities, you know, a little child coming with a tea towel on their head saying, sorry, there's no room in the inn. And they go to the next door and they knock. No, there's no room in the inn. And they go to the next place. There's no room in the inn until they come to the final inn and they say, there's no room, but do you know what? We've got a stable out back. You can, it's a bit dirty and the animals are still out there, uh, but you can go into that stable and you can have your baby. You know, we see it on the postcards, don't we? It's here, this wooden structure. It's always this wooden structure that has no front to it, which is odd really when it's a stable trying to keep animals in. And there's no front. Yeah. So they go in the stable and there's this ox and there's a, some sheep and, and they have baby Jesus. And it sounds great, isn't it? This is the nativity story that we're brought up with. This is what our kids think happens in the nativity. But actually, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense historically or culturally. And if you've read Luke 2, and you read it, and you can actually just look at it and say, do you know what, but there are lots of things in there that would sway me to think this is the story. And, you know, the problem is, you will see lots of things on at this point in time of the year. See lots of documentaries, you'll read lots of stuff, where historians are questioning the authenticity of this story. And they're questioning this, the accuracy of the biblical accounts. And I have to be honest, when I look at what they're saying, and I look closely at this passage, and I look at the history and the culture, I have a lot of sympathy with them. 
Now, I know that's horrific to say. Please don't shoot me before I explain why. But I think as we unpack some of the culture and we unpack some of the historical facts, I want to explain actually why this traditional nativity story makes no sense. Okay? So, let's go for it. First, we read verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Okay? We're going to stop there. We have this guy, Joseph. What we find out is he is going back to his hometown because he's in the lineage of David. He's going to the city of David. Who's, who's this David they're talking about? King David. He is Israel's greatest king at this point. And just as a side note, David was born here, but actually the city of David was actually became known as Jerusalem. But actually this is where he was born. We have this guy who is going to the hometown, which would have been very, very proud actually, as a hometown, of having King David, the greatest king of Israel, having been born in this place. And he is, Joseph is of royal stock. That's who he is. And he's going to his hometown, and you're telling me that he goes and he knocks on these inns, and no one has any room. No one welcomes them into their home. This is a man who would have been highly honoured in this place. And cultural heritage is everything. I know um, it's a silly story, but my surname is Clifton Brown, and um, there's a little place called Hexham near Newcastle. And I remember going there as a child, and we went, we went to the petrol station to fill up first. And I went to the petrol station with my dad, and he pulled out his card to pay for the petrol, and the, the guy in the petrol station saw the card and said, Oh, do you know what? It's on the house. And my dad was like, what? He said, yeah, absolutely, on the house today for you. And we were like, this is odd. Got back in the car, what a nice guy. Maybe he's a Christian. <laughs> we then, we were six kids. We went to this pub that was heaving, and we went to the staff and said, listen, is there any room for us to sit down and eat lunch here? They are like, no, no, I'm really sorry. Um, you'll have to wait at least an hour before you can get a table. He said, let me take your name. He said, it's Clifton Brown. He went, okay, um, I will sort you at a table in the next 10 minutes. And it was like, what is going on here? And we found out that the MP of Hexham was a Clifton Brown. <laughs> no relation to us whatsoever. But because he was highly honoured in this place, actually, he must have, wherever he went, he got things free. He was obviously doing a good job, and the people were pleased with what he was doing. But they saw the name and thought, boom, here you go. We're going to give it for free. Do you know, I want to suggest there's no way that someone of royal stock from the greatest king of Israel wouldn't have been welcomed into his hometown. Not only that, he probably would have had some relative somewhere in that area. Verse 5 says, He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Do you know, even if somehow Joseph didn't have any relatives in this town, they'd all moved out because they couldn't afford it, we actually know that Mary did have relatives very nearby as well. 
When we read of this account, when he goes to visit Elizabeth for three months, it says he, she, he goes to the hill country in Judea. This is the same area, actually, that they've gone to. It's Judea. It's the hill country. Do you know, it's true that Mary's pregnant, they're not married. And she could have been shamed by certain relatives. There might have been some relatives who said, there's no way. The shame on us as a family. There's no way we can accept her in for having a child out of wedlock. But actually, we know they could have went and stayed with Elizabeth and Zachariah because they knew the truth of who this child was. And also, if we understand the culture of the day, we realise that this was an an honour and shame culture that they're in. And with honour and shame cultures, people highly value doing honourable things. And they fear doing anything that will bring shame on you as an individual or as a family or as a community. And in this culture that we're in, pregnant ladies were looked after. They were highly valued. And the thought that people would turn away a heavily pregnant lady is just so unlikely. It's really hard to believe culturally. It would actually have brought massive shame on them as a community to have left you know, a very pregnant lady out in the cold or whatever the weather was like there. And you know, the final blow for me that really hammers the last nail into the coffin is found in verse 7. It says, She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Scholars, historians, commentators all agree there was no commercial inns anywhere in Bethlehem at this time. No commercial inns. And you know, even if you were, even if there was, Mary and Joseph were very unlikely to be able to afford one if there had been an inn. The idea then that we have of Joseph is this guy who's he's fairly disorganised. He hasn't rang the travel in in advance. He hasn't done his booking online and he's, he hasn't looked after his, his wife-to-be. He's turned up. It's a little bit like me. I, we went on holiday to South Africa and I, I'm so used to booking hire cars because I go to Ireland and do travel and I thought it'd be fine to turn up to the airport and just book a hire car while we were there because that's what I do in Ireland. And we turned up to South Africa and, of course, there was some kind of holiday going on. There was no hire cars available whatsoever. That was my highly disorganised self. But here, the idea that he hasn't planned, that he hasn't booked in, it's just not a real reality. So my question is, what is actually going on in this passage, this narrative that we're so familiar with? Because it's not making any sense. That traditional view of knocking on a dozen hotel doors and staying in an outside stable is not what I think has happened in this story. But I want to be absolutely clear with one thing. I don't think there are any inconsistencies in the text. Okay, I just think actually we need to look at how we've been reading or interpreting this text. And I want to look at what I think Luke is trying to convey, but more importantly, what I think God is trying to say to us through this passage. So I'm going to start you with some architecture. Okay, this is a typical family home in this day and age. And what you had is you had this door that opened up on the sides 
and you have steps that lead up to the main area of living. Okay? And you see here, that's a, that's a very, very typical family home there. And you see in this next one, you've got two rooms. You've got the family living area and you've got the guest room. And then you've got this little stable area at the front. Okay? And when we understand a little bit of the culture and the architecture, we start to understand the story in a far better light. What would happen is in this family room, the family would spend all their time. It was this sort of, they would cook, eat, sleep, everything in this family room. Okay? You see that stable there? There was no wall between the stable and that family room. But it was on a different level. You can see the stairs there that go down to this other level of the stable. What they would do is they would store animals in that stable area. And what they would do is you would have your animals out in the daytime and they would be grazing. And at night you would bring the animals into the stable area. One, because you wanted to protect them from theft or from any prey. And secondly, because they actually brought a lot of heat into the family area. Okay, so you bring your animals in through that door into the stable area, and the room itself, this family room, was actually on a slant. It would slant down towards the stable area, because what would happen every day is you would wake up and you would sweep down into the stable area all of the dirt and rubbish, and you would have you would have sent your animals out first thing in the morning. You would send your animals out to, to graze. You'd sweep all that dirt down there and you would set up business in the stable area. So your family business would be there in this stable area. And that's a very typical family home. You can see those two bowl-shaped uh, things in the floor. They were cut out into this floor. And that was allowing the cows to feed. So they were at that height where they could be in the stable area and it was perfect height for them to just lean over and to eat the straw that was put into the mangers. You have two mangers there in this typical family home. And as we start to understand this, we start to have a little bit of a better picture of what was going on in this story. So verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, and she laid him in a manger. Actually, the safest place to lay him was in that cut-out bowl in the floor in this manger, in the family home. And yes, you might say, well, okay, starting to see that, but what's this about there being no room in the inn? Because that's clearly there. And I want to suggest, as we look at that, it's actually not the best translation. And for some of you in your translations, your translations may be more accurate. It doesn't say in, it might say space. Or, And I want to use a few Greek words here to help us to try and understand what's going on in this narrative. And the first one is topos. Okay, this is the word here used for room. So there's no space, there's no room in the inn. And when we think of room in our culture, in our Western culture, we think of a four-sided room, don't we? Um, and so we might be thinking, actually, how many available rooms are there in a hotel? Actually, this word topos doesn't mean a four-sided room. It means there's literally no space. It's a space. It's, a, it's the whole thing. There's no space. And the word in, so there's no space in the in. The word in, you can see it here, you can't read it, is kataluma. It means the guest room. Okay? 
It's the guest room. And we see it in Mark 14 and Luke 22. Jesus sends the disciples off to go find this room for the Passover. And he uses the same Greek word here in both of these passages, the kataluma, the guest room. Go find the space in the guest room. And actually, there's a different word used for commercial in. And again, we see it. Sometimes we have to turn to the Greek to try and understand what's going on. And we see in the story of the Good Samaritan, where this guy's been beaten up and they have to find somewhere for him to stay, they actually use this word, pandashin. And it's used in other parts of the Bible as well. But that is a commercial inn. Okay? Somewhere where you pay for someone to stay. And so it's not the same word used here. It's kataluma. It's guest room. So what are we saying here for this story? We're saying that they knocked on this door and there was no space in the guest room. So this family that they've knocked on have said to them, there's no space in the guest room. But actually, this isn't a story of rejection. This isn't them being rejected from every place. They've actually been welcomed into the home of a family, into their family living space. And Mary has given birth to baby Jesus, and she's placed him in a manger in the traditional family living room. So it's not about rejection. Actually, this is about acceptance. This is about looking at the hospitality of this young family that have invited them into their own home. They've taken them out of the cold. They haven't put them in some lonely stable in the back. They've brought them right into the family home to be amongst them. And you know, I want to suggest that this picture is a really beautiful picture that we have. It totally changes the picture that we have of the traditional nativity. I think it's beautiful because it shows us that God allowed his child to be born in the midst of a family, in a family home, in someone's living room. But I want to ask the question, why? Why is it that Luke is trying to tell us? What's he trying to tell us through this? And I think the next story that comes helps us to understand a little bit more about what is it that he's trying to convey. What is it he wants to convey of God's heart here? So, verse 8, we come to the shepherds. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. So Luke puts this story, these two stories side by side together. Of Jesus being born in a family living room. And by the way, we obviously we don't get to find out who this family is. We don't know whether they're relatives or whether they're just a family who have just welcomed them in. We don't get to find that out. What we do know about them is they're obviously a kind, humble family who haven't wanted to bring any shame on them, their family, or the community there. And then we're introduced to these shepherds. And it's important to understand a few things about shepherds in the culture of the day. Shepherds are not small children with tea towels on their heads. 
These are guys who are likely to be fairly big, burly guys. They had to be brave guys. They're protecting the flock from wild beasts, wolves and bears, and they're in the dark a lot. They have to not be afraid of that dark. And so when we hear that they are terrified, this should really stand out. Because these guys are almost, they shouldn't be terrified by many things. You can imagine facing a wild beast in the dark. I don't know about you, but scared the living daylight out of me. These men are used to handling danger. And it's important to understand that this word terrified is, is massive for them. Secondly, it's important to understand culturally that they're not thought of well, shepherds, in Jewish history. Okay? Historians suggest that rabbis put together a list of five dishonorable trades not recommended for upstanding Jews. And they found five of these lists, and on three of them, shepherds are there on the list. They appear on the list. And it was seen as a dirty, sort of low-down career because actually they were away in the fields for long periods of time. They were isolated from society. And so they really got stigmatized as being outcasts because they were always on the fringe. Okay? They were loners. They weren't particularly liked people or trusted people. And yet, we have the angels appearing first to them. The angels of God coming to shepherds out in the field to declare the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah of all of Israel. God chose these types of guys to be the first to be informed. He didn't go to Herod or the officials or the chief rabbis, but a bunch of shepherds, some social outcasts in their culture. And these guys were terrified, as I said, and some commentators say it wasn't just the appearance of the angels that they think they were terrified why, uh, because, but, but the message itself was terrifying. They were, these guys weren't used to this. They're not the kind of guys who were used to mixing with royalty or with kings. Chris spoke about Herod last week. And Herod was actually a megalomaniac. He built many palaces. He wanted people to see his wealth and his authority. Okay? And this is the Jewish king that they would have known. This would have been their role model for what a king looks like. It would have been Herod. And so for them, Herod was totally completely inaccessible. He was someone you talked about or knew of, but the thought of meeting him was not even on the agenda. It wasn't a contemplation. It's a little bit like our royal family. It's not every day you think, oh yeah, I'm going to go see the royal family today. It's just not, it's not on our agenda. But Jesus was different. And I want to suggest, I think... I think Luke puts these two stories together because he wants to highlight the difference. He wants to highlight that Jesus didn't come in a palace or a fortress or from extreme wealth. He came in a house, in a living room, just like what theirs would have looked like. He wanted to say, he's one of you. He's accessible to all peoples, even in the very way that he came. He's totally accessible. 
And for these shepherds to enter a house that would have just looked like theirs would have been far more normal for them. Do you know, they would have been in awe. I'm sure I'm going to meet the Messiah. But that awkwardness of walking into a palace or a fortress, which is highly decadent and lots of splendor around them, wouldn't have been there. They're entering a normal home, just like their own. Jesus humbled himself. He gave up all the riches of heaven to come to mankind. Secondly, I want to suggest that Jesus' coming affects everyone. It affects everyone. Caesar Augustus, as I mentioned, he achieved many things. He may have changed the world, actually, in many ways back then. And you know, we even have a month named after him, August. Do you realize that? It's from Caesar Augustus. But Jesus, I want to suggest, affected all mankind, past, present, and future. And the world calendar has been set by him. Jesus came to rescue man from his own selfish ways. He's defeated death on the cross, and he's rose to victory, giving us an absolute eternal hope a future with him. He didn't come first and foremost for the religious leaders, the pious. He came first for the shepherds, which means, honestly, it doesn't matter what economic, social background that you're from. He came for you. Luke's gospel is one of the gospels that really focuses on the care and compassion of God. He wants to express his compassion for those on the edges of society, the downtrodden, the outcasts. And you may be sitting there this morning thinking, well, why would Jesus want me? That might have been your thought as we were worshipping. Why Why would Jesus really want me? And honestly, we often view ourselves, don't we, through that lens. We can look at ourselves and, and write ourselves off. And yet we need to start looking through his lens. Jesus' lens, as he looks at us and he adores us and he loves us so much that he gave himself up for us. Verse 10 says this, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. I want to suggest, folks, that the news here that's being brought is good for all. Whether you feel like you have it all together or whether you feel like life is falling apart for you, this is good news for you. Whether you feel like you have lots of wealth or nothing at all, this is good news for you. Whether you feel like a social outcast or that you're a celebrity in the culture, this is good news for you. And finally, I want to suggest that Jesus transforms us When we look at verse 17 and 18, it says, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Do you know, just a few verses earlier, we've seen it, haven't we? The shepherds are terrified. And here we see a group of confident, purposeful shepherds who seem to have a new joy and a new peace about them. And this is all down to a visit into the presence of the Messiah. 
And that is what changed them. Coming into the presence of the Messiah. God has used the outcasts of society to be his messengers. And it says all who heard it were amazed. Do you know the birth narrative? It is just so rich. You can keep looking at it and finding stuff in it. I want you to remember this story is not a story about rejection, about shame on a community of Bethlehem. This story is one of how the divine breaks into the everyday lives of normal people. This story is about the absolute joy the king, as the king of the world presents himself to those who would never expect to be welcomed in. He values them and he gives them total access to him as he transforms every fibre of their lives. That's what this birth narrative is about. And I want to suggest we as Freedom Church, folks, we want to be a church that is accessible to all, don't we? Not stuck behind walls that people feel they can't come into. We as a church are called to be a place where people encounter the presence of God and are transformed by his very presence. We as a church are to be a people who proclaim Christ as the good news for all. And I pray that many people will be amazed by the Messiah who has come to bring hope, peace and joy to all peoples. And I want to encourage you, we have a Christmas season here, I want to encourage us to have open homes open homes where we expect to encounter Jesus and we expect others coming into our homes to encounter his presence amongst us.